This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we step outside the doors of our homes and our classrooms and go exploring to meet God wherever God will find us on the journey. We talk with spiritual teacher and New York Times bestselling author Barbara Brown Taylor about her recent book, Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Barbara Brown Taylor. She's the author of 14 books, including the New York Times bestsellers An Altar in the World, which received a 2012 Silver Nautilus Award, Learning to Walk in the Dark, which was named one of Publishers Weekly's Best Religion Books of 2014 and received a 2015 Living Now Book Award, and Leaving Church, which received an Author of the Year Award from the Georgia Writers Association. She's received major media acclaim and has been featured on the cover of Time Magazine as well as Oprah. Winfrey's Super Soul Sunday. She lives on a working farm in rural northeast Georgia with her husband. Barbara Brown Taylor, welcome to Things Not Seen. David, thank you for asking me. So I'm interested in starting with an image that comes about a third of the way through your book, Holy Envy. You have taken your students to a Hindu temple in Atlanta, Georgia, as part of your World Religions 101 class. And there's a point towards the end of this visit where the priest in the temple, at the urging of one of your colleagues who's gone along with you, does a little ceremony and, among other things, offers you and your students some almonds that have been... I guess, for want of a better word, dedicated to one of the gods in the temple. And as a Christian, your choice is, should I eat the almonds or not? And you also are thinking about what your responsibility is to your students who have come there trusting you not to put them in a situation where their souls might be in jeopardy. I'm wondering if you could take us back to that moment and flesh it out a little bit. And how good did the almonds taste? I, yeah, that chapter is called Vishnu's Almonds, isn't it? it? It was, first of all, a surprise to me. That was early, early on in my career teaching that class, the first field trip we'd ever done, in fact. And as you say, a, a Hindu colleague had gone with us, and unbeknownst to me, she had ahead of time arranged for this prayer service um, with a priest in front of a large statue of Vishnu, to whom the whole temple was dedicated. But I didn't know she'd done that, so when she motioned me over to come into this um, deity's alcove, I motioned for some students to join me. And as you said, before I knew it, we were in the middle of a worship ceremony that, that <clears throat> I, I think lots of Christian students go expecting to be evangelized, and it, it was hard to explain that that was not the intention of this. The intention was to ask God's blessing on them. But for Christians, there's a lot in Scripture that sticks in our heads 
all the way from thou shalt have no other gods before me to not eating food offered to idols. So I was surprised, the students were surprised, and the only person who wasn't was the Hindu professor who was with us, who had done a kind and loving thing for us, to ask for God's blessing on our studies, etc. But as I say in the book, I sort of ended up in a car crash in my mind on the freeway, not knowing what to do. If I'd been alone, I would have eaten the almonds, but the students were looking at me for guidance, and that's where I panicked. Well, and what's interesting to me, and you pointed this out, is that the Christian tradition has these kind of road rules that say you're not supposed to worship other gods. But it's interesting to me, especially in light of that chapter, there are portions of the Apostle Paul's writings, particularly in Galatians, but also a little bit in Romans, where this question comes up. And as I went back and looked at some of those passages, it occurred to me that Paul says, if you don't believe in the God, it doesn't really hurt you to eat the almonds. And so I'm I'm interested in, in how you know, texts and traditions and all of those things collided together in the car crash in your mind, to use your phrase. So when we're talking about that car crash, and I realize we've kind of car crashed into this conversation too. Thank you for letting me start in such a a robust starting point. But as you revisit that thought, both in writing the chapter and, and now with our conversation, what sorts of responsibilities did you feel like you had, not only to your students' souls, but also to your own soul in that moment? Or was that not the question that was foremost in your mind? I was a traveler, so by the time I came to that temple, I had been in many places in the world and had worked through my relationship with those temples, those different places of worship, um, and and did not feel as if my soul was in any danger at all. But I didn't have time to do much in-depth exegesis with the students, as you just did on Paul's letter. In fact, you have come upon a theme that crops up over and over again in the book, which is going back to look at passages that I remember one way to find out they read quite differently when I pay attention. And I think that's not just my issue, but lots of my Christian friends as well. We remember a story one way and think we know what it means, but when we go back and look, it opens up in a in a different direction, or at least in more directions. So, so I um, did not go back to that temple again. I found a friendlier, smaller living room sort of center that we could go to in Atlanta. Maybe I should take back friendly. The temple was plenty friendly, but friendly to students who'd never been any place like that before. To go back to your question, early on in the class, I I make it pretty clear I'm not going to take responsibility for students' souls, that they're in charge of that. And if they're church communities, if they're active in one, they have pastors, they have friends, they have teachers, and I always tell them that the classroom is not a place of devotion, it's a place of academic. And sort of taking a world tour with the excuse of studying world religions to find places they've never found before. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Barbara Brown Taylor. She's the author of 14 books, including several New York Times bestsellers. And today we're talking about her recent book, Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. One of the things that you mention in light of that chapter, Vishnu's Almonds, in your book, Holy Envy, is you talk about the difficulty of just being an observer when you're doing this traveling. It's very difficult to remain an observer and not become a participant. And I wonder, as we're beginning this conversation, how you have come over the years to think about that line between observer and participant when you're doing this kind of religious exploration. And is that line still important to you? 
It is important to me, not only, as you said earlier, for my soul's health, but also out of respect for the community I'm visiting. Because when I come on a worship day for them, I'm coming into the most important thing they do all week together. And I certainly, at that point, don't want to be a tourist. I want at least to be a respectful um, guest. And I became much better as a teacher of that class in choosing site visits that would allow us to meet in a library instead of a, a sanctuary kind of place where we could ask questions and get our host to tell us all kinds of things about decorations on the wall and the books on the shelves. So I began to gravitate more and more to study situations instead of worship occasions. So it, it remained hugely important to me to leave school, to leave the classroom, to get in a van and go somewhere and to be the guest who received the hospitality of strangers instead of sitting in a classroom in our comfort zone, inviting other people to come bear the discomfort. I found there was huge learning, I think especially for Christian students, about receiving hospitality as well as offering it. So that stayed important, though the places we went changed. Well, and that's a theme that comes up again and again in your book, Holy Envy, this notion of hospitality and if I if I can characterize what you find in the various chapters, you find that other religions are often very willing to offer amazing hospitality to your students, but you find that your students sometimes are defensive or not hospitable in return. And you raise this question more than once in the book, what is it about Christianity that makes it so uh, itchy about hospitality? And so let me turn that question over to you and say, as you've been observing students who come from Christian traditions, where have you found these sticking points to hospitality to lie? That's interesting. Even as you asked that, I thought of it a different way. We're not sticky about offering hospitality. We're sticky about receiving it. In other words, we're not sticky about putting out food for guests to eat. We're uncomfortable about eating food that hosts have put out for us to eat. So it's interesting. And if I were going to guess at the reasons, it would be, first of all, that students on these field trips had never been to places like this before. So what they had instead were imaginations fueled by a lot of second- or third-hand sources, many of them quite frightening. So there's that. And the second thing is snippets of teachings that would fire the stove of, am I making Jesus mad? Is this going to make me a traitor to my own tradition? We can get around to why I then named the the book Holy Envy to try to speak directly to that fear. But then third of all, maybe a kind of odd boomerang effect of the golden rule, which is people expected to be evangelized. They expected our hosts to be trying to turn them into Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims or Jews, and that was never the intention of the hosts. We were welcomed more than once by people who said, come as you are and leave as you are. Our only intention is to, to let you find out more about, about our tradition, because we know a lot about yours, since yours is the dominant tradition, but we're so happy you're here to learn about ours. So if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Barbara Brown-Taylor. She's written 14 books, including many New York Times bestsellers, and today we're talking about her most recent book called Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. And we will be digging into these subjects as the conversation continues, as well as finding out a little bit more about Barbara Brown-Taylor herself. We'll be back in just a moment.
Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Barbara Brown Taylor. She's the author of 14 books, including several New York Times bestsellers. And today we're talking about her recent book, Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. So you wrote this book, Holy Envy, in the context of your work as a college professor at Piedmont College at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. But you did not intend at the beginning of your career to start as a college professor. You, in fact, went in a different direction. So let's take a couple steps back so my listeners can get to know you a little bit. Tell me a little bit about your journey. Were you raised in a religious household, and were you always desiring to be a person who sort of swam in religious waters? These days we have to define words like religion and spiritual, don't we? Um, I think I swam in spiritual waters or transcendent waters or magical waters or mystical waters. But no, I was not raised in a church. I was baptized in the Catholic Church, pre-Vatican II. My mother was Methodist, my father was Catholic, and it was largely my grandmother's wish that I be baptized Catholic. But it was so inhospitable to my mother, since we've been using that word, that she reputedly turned to my father after I had been baptized and said, we are getting out of here and we're never coming back. <laughs> so they never did. My two sisters who came after me were never baptized. And my parents, not just for that reason, I think for, for many reasons, cultural, political at the time, the 70s, everybody was 50s, 60s, 70s doing new things. But I found religion on my own. They never blocked me. You know, they dropped me off at the Methodist Church in second grade, or they let me go off to a synagogue with my friend in fifth grade. But when I was 16, through a friendship circle, ended up in a Southern Baptist Church, and didn't last long, because I took what they were saying seriously, and um, brought hippies to church one night. And before I knew it, the hippies and I had all been turned out on the sidewalk, so I didn't last long there. But that was the beginning of a kind of foray through a number of kinds of churches. I became a religion major in college, had no intention of being ordained, did not belong to a church, uh, went to ecumenical university worship, but ended up getting a fellowship to Yale Divinity School, became Episcopal while I was there. And many years later did decide to pursue ordination, not because I'd heard a voice from heaven, but because I loved the work. So... When I was about 31, I was ordained, and that was a long time ago now. Well, when you say you loved the work, help me understand what it was specifically about that work that was so attractive to you. I was fresh out of seminary, a brand-new Episcopalian, when I was offered a job in a big downtown church in Atlanta. And as the minimum wage seminarian on staff, I was sent to hospitals, and I was sent off with a youth group. And I was invited to participate in the liturgy, and I learned how to put on all those Episcopal vestments, and was even invited to preach as an as-yet unordained person 
And I loved all of that. I loved every bit of it. I loved the language. I loved the clothes. I loved the worship. I loved the people. And I wanted to do more of it. I wanted to do as much of it as I could. So that's what I mean by loving the work. You used a phrase a moment ago that I want to circle back to. You used the phrase spiritual but not religious. This show originates on an evangelical station, and then then it goes out as a podcast to many other types of listeners. But I think probably my first round of listeners will hear a phrase like spiritual but not religious, and they'll get a little bit of a a twitch. (laughs) And so I'd like to know kind of how you understand that phrase to mean when you said that you were kind of motivated by spiritual desires but not necessarily religious desires. Flesh that out for us. Well, I was six. And I didn't go to church, so to use a word like religion for that would have um, violated my definition of religion, which is inherited tradition and narrative and ritual, holiday, food, song. I didn't have any of that as a child because I had not been raised in a tradition, so I was using that time appropriately. Now, I the, the distinction I make again is that religion offers me far more than I can gain in a lifetime of my own exploration. I, by joining the Episcopal Church in the larger Christian tradition, I gained a kinship network that went all the way back to the the first and second centuries of the last millennium. I inherited sacred texts. I inherited people who had written about those texts. I inherited a church history that had produced far, far more iterations of Christianity than poor Jesus ever imagined. So now I hold my religion in one hand, and I think of spirituality perhaps associated with the third person of the Trinity as being the part of the God of my understanding who blesses me as I visit the neighbors and and go out. But spirituality is very linked to practice for me, and a central practice for me as a Christian is loving the neighbor as the self, and that for me has involved a lot of what John Philip Newell calls peregrination. I love that answer so much, and part of it has to do with where you started, which is the vastness of the inheritance. And you use an image in your book, Holy Envy, that has stuck with me. You talk about, and I don't think it's your image, I think you're borrowing it from someone else, but the, the notion of when we come to a religion And when we try to think about God, it's almost as if an oyster making a a pearl at the bottom of a pool, but we're trying to imagine what a dancing ballerina is like on land. And the distance between those two events of of knowledge, of experience, of, of opportunity, I realize that you are talking about the fact that you if I'm hearing you correctly, are saying that you're never going to master this stuff. You're never going to get all of the answers, but you're enjoying very much being part of the tradition of it. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes, I'm firmly persuaded. Though At this moment, I could not tell you if it was Aquinas or Kierkegaard who said it, but if you understand, it isn't God. And that actually is a, a kind of turning point in this book for some people because I do identify with the oyster and not with the ballerina, or I at least respect the, the ballerina whom I call God as being far beyond my understanding, that puts me in a place of theological humility that does not suit all Christians. I talk also in the book about John Hick, who asked for a Copernican revolution in theology, where the major traditions of the world would let God have the sun at the center of the solar system, and the religions would have their relationships to that center. But that's 
difficult, I think, for a lot of Christians who have been taught and firmly believe that the sun is their place, that they are at the center of the solar system, and the other planets, if they deserve to be spinning at all, are inferior and dependent somehow on the tradition of Christianity. So we could talk the rest of the hour about that part. Uh, but I'm in orbit. I'm in, I'm in orbit. I am not the sun. And my tradition is not the sun, in my view. We all orbit the God whose thoughts are not our thoughts and whose ways are not our ways. I learned that from my religion. There's a point in your book, Holy Envy, where you actually talk about this, and it brings us back to that same story of the Hindu temple. You have one student that you talk about that runs out of the temple in tears in the middle of all of this exploration, and you go out for a moment to speak to her, and she says, the people in there are so lost. They could be worshiping Jesus, but instead they're worshiping idols. And I'm very interested in how you chose to deal with that moment. You you didn't try and fix her belief system. You didn't try and change the way that she was approaching the hospitality that she was seeing. Instead, you simply offered her the opportunity to stay out there on the front steps and pray. You say, it's a beautiful night. This is a wonderful place to pray. Why don't you pray? And I don't know whether you're asking her to pray for them or to pray for herself, but I'm interested in in that reflex where you didn't want to correct her perception of being the center of the universe in that moment. Oh, gosh, no. No, no, no. And that was her teacher's fault, that she was in tears. Her teacher had not vetted the temple adequately or thought about what it would be like for someone who had never left the the county or the state of Georgia to encounter such a place for the first time. But no, I would never have dreamt of trying to change her mind. I was upset by her upset and so distressed that she was distressed. And I, in fact, encouraged her to stay out there and pray exactly the prayers she was praying um, and to wait, because inside the temple I had another student who was walking around telling me it was like Pentecost, that he could sense the presence of God in that place, though it was not a familiar place to him. So students were all over the place in terms of how they reacted. But she hung in, and I hung in with her, and by the end of the term, readers can find out in the book why she made an A in the class. You mentioned Jonathan Sachs, and there's another quotation from Sachs that you bring out in your book, Holy Envy. Jonathan Sachs says that when we arrive at peace, it usually involves a profound crisis of our identity to get to that point of peace. And I think that's one of the things that this book does so well, is it really demonstrates your students going through those crises of identity, but coming out the other end a more successfully integrated, a more open, a more loving, a more hospitable kind of believer in their own tradition oftentimes, but sometimes also feeling the tug to go to a different tradition. But I wonder if you would be comfortable talking about your own crisis of identity. Have you had moments where, as you've been on the way to peace, you found yourself profoundly troubled by these things that you've discovered? I've been mostly troubled about my own tradition, which makes sense. It's the one I know. And when I left home, as it were, to go visit other people in the places that are sacred to them, I discovered, not because they told me directly, but I discovered over and over again how surprised they were to meet a Christian who wanted to listen instead of talk, and a Christian who was interested in what they held sacred instead of wanting to convince them it was wrong, and I wanted to be near the edge to welcome strangers if they came into my sphere, but I also wanted to um, be close to the door so I could visit and come home. 
that's a little cryptic, isn't it? Maybe I should draw it. But I have found a place of comfort for me, and I think of helpfulness to my tradition and also to those who do not belong to my tradition of, of being on what Richard Rohr calls the inside of the outside edge. It's a good place to camp out. I can even draw some parallels with wilderness, with the ways in which wilderness is fruitful for those who've left home and maybe have not arrived where they were going yet. I'm there. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. We're speaking today with spiritual teacher and New York Times bestselling author Barbara Brown Taylor about her recent book, Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Common Wheel for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Common Wheel podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwheelmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwheelmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with spiritual teacher and New York Times bestselling author Barbara Brown Taylor about her recent book, Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. Well, a theme that comes up again and again in your book, Holy Envy, is the notion of religious literacy. And I think it's fair to characterize that that's what you see your calling as being as you work with these students in the classroom. You're trying to increase their religious literacy. Let me ask you, first of all, what is your definition of religious literacy or good religious competency? And then the second question would be, what is the value of that to students today? You just brought up the phrase I wanted to bring up, religious literacy, which helped a lot about 10 years into teaching this class to stop thinking of it primarily as learning about other religions and to begin thinking of it as a class that would educate students across the curriculum, whatever their majors, in living in a world with more religious pluralism. Um, some would travel and some would stay home, but even if they went into the hospital at, in Gainesville, Georgia, 30 miles south of the college, they would see a little placard at the desk that said 25 languages were spoken there. So I thought nurses could use this class to learn how people approach death and dying and blood transfusion, organ transplants. Criminal justice majors could use it to learn how other people approached autopsy and, and murder investigations. Uh, coaches, people preparing to work in athletics, needed to know about holidays and food customs. I could go on and on. Uh, but religious literacy, I think, tweaked the class in a way that opened it up to students so they could stop fearing the being evangelized piece and, and see it as a part of being human in the world, being Christian in the world, to know a little bit about other religions in order to do their jobs better and be better neighbors. There comes a point in the book where you actually quote a student that 
And the student says that they found that it was not about changing their religion, but about changing the way that they look at things. Would that be a good watchword for what you now think you're trying to do in the classroom? You're you're not trying to shake a student out of their religious identity, but you're trying to get them to take a step back and look critically at that religious identity? Or is there a better way to say that? I had 15 weeks to present five major world religions. I know other people who did that by teaching students how to think about religion. I took more of, here's my biggest word I'll use, a phenomenological approach, which is simply to expose students to central teachings and practices of these faiths to take them on some site visits if they wanted to go, to bring some things into the classroom like piles of kosher food so they could learn how to look for the symbols on the food, or I'd bring in Tibetan singing bells. I wanted to enrich the material students' imaginations had to work with around people of other faiths and people of no faith. Uh, I often said to them today the story of the good Samaritan might be the story of the good humanist or the good Muslim or the good Sikh that... If they identified as Christian, I hope this exploration would cause them to ask things about their own faith, their own practice that would deepen that for them. And if they were students of no particular faith, that they could eavesdrop on many answers to the world's big questions. Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? Where are we going? Well, a moment ago, you said that you would delight in bringing in things like kosher food and religious artifacts and prayer bowls, and this also becomes sort of a line through your book, Holy Envy. You almost become, and this is my phrase, not yours, but kind of a collector of these kinds of artifacts at one point. But then you reach a a realization where you, you say that possessing an artifact is not the same as possessing the spiritual reality that that artifact represents. And so talk to me, first of all, about the value of bringing these artifacts into the presence of your students, but then also talk to me about the journey of discovering that maybe there's something more that they need to know about these objects than simply how odd and exciting they are. Yes, and in most of the instances I just mentioned, I think what students figured out was why these things were important to the religions we were studying. But to go back to artifacts, I call myself a spiritual shoplifter in the book because, again, I'm a traveler, and I have brought home things from all around the world from places I visited. And it wasn't until I started teaching world religions that I thought twice about that and and what it was I was up to. But bringing those things to class was hugely important for students who are, let's face it, late adolescents. And material culture is interesting to them, to handle, to smell, to taste, to touch, to see, uh, and not just to read text out of a book. But it also gave me a chance to talk with them about how Holy Envy can go sour when it turns into either assimilation, just trying to make all religions alike, I just heard a cab driver say that yesterday. Oh, you teach world religions. You know, that can't be too hard. They're all alike. And I didn't have time to say, no, really, they're not. (laughs) But to encourage students to think about assimilation, to think about appropriation. You know, what is it to decide you love the elephant-headed god of Hinduism so much you're going to buy tennis shoes and put elephant decals on it? Is that a respectful thing to do? So the artifacts ended up giving us a lot of things to talk about and a way to focus on things that gave us roads into concepts about uh, respectful ways to interact with people of other faiths, essentially to do unto them as we would have them do unto us. 
You used the phrase just now in your answer, and you also used the phrase as the title of your book, Holy Envy. And so I'd like to take a moment and talk about the origin of that phrase. You did not invent that phrase. You instead got it from the dean of Harvard Divinity School, Christopher Stendhal. But sort of tell me about what Stendhal's thinking was and how his ideas about holy envy became useful to you. That is his phrase. I'm pretty sure he invented it. I researched it pretty heavily before I took it as my title. He was dean of Harvard Divinity School when I was at Yale Divinity School. He then went on to become the bishop of the Church of Sweden in Stockholm. And he was there in 1985 when the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints opened a new temple there, a large 14,000-square-foot temple. There was some concern in Stockholm about that, that still had a Church of Sweden, an established church. And he was called to the microphone, I think, to diffuse the tension and propose three rules of religious understanding. Quickly, they are, one, when trying to understand another religion, talk to its adherents and not its enemies. Two, don't compare your best to their worst. And three, leave room for holy envy. And I was so taken by the phrase that he didn't explain. But I liked the way it turned envy into something that could have a sacred dimension. And that ended up helping students as well. When they saw something they admired in another tradition, a phrase like holy envy helped them believe they weren't traitors, that they were perhaps becoming both more religiously literate and also better neighbors because they could see something lovely in another person's face, as they hoped that person would see something lovely in theirs. So throughout your book, Holy Envy, you are clear that you have a critical stance towards the Christian traditions that you traffic in. And I'm wondering, as you think critically about your own faith, what are some of the holy envies that currently are there in your spirit that you see and you esteem in other faiths right now that make you wish that your own faith in this Christian tradition had a little bit of those? Well, first of all, my tradition is the only one I feel like I can criticize. It's like, it, you know, anyone who um, is partnered up knows you can criticize your own parents, your own family, but you better not <laughs> criticize your partner's family. So that's my defense for why I take mine on in this book, is it's the only one I feel free to do that with. And I could go through the things I admire, but I'd have to own that that's because I had beginner's mind everywhere I went. I saw only the best in the other traditions, so that I saw, you know, a full practice of Sabbath in Judaism. I saw in Buddhism an emphasis on ending the suffering of all creatures, all sentient creatures. In Islam, I saw embodied prayer five times a day. In Hinduism, I saw a regard for the zillion ways that human beings approach the divine. And of course, anybody in those traditions is already writing me letters saying, eh, we, you know, we got just as many stinkers as you do. So it, it, it was my beginner's mind that fueled my envy, but it also ended up bringing me back to things I envy in other Christian traditions. You know, as I said earlier, there are so many ways to be Christian. So now I visit Holiness Pentecostal friends and am taken away by the enthusiasm, or I go to a Greek Orthodox church and the icons leave me breathless. But I've also experienced Holy Envy within my own tradition in all the different ways it's lived out by other Christians. 
We were discussing Christopher Stendhal, and there's another quotation of his that you use in the book. He says, in the eyes of God, we're all minorities. And I wonder how you interpret that phrase. Uh, Do you see that as minimizing religion, or do you see that as an opportunity for religions to explore each other with humility? The latter. I I mean, I think the, the book points that way. And when you ask that question, I went back to that Copernican revolution idea that insofar as none of us is the majority who is God, then we are we're creatures, creatures, not creator. That's the sense in which I heard that statement from him, that in God's eyes, we're all creatures, children, little ones, the little ones, although that language is very Christian, but Jesus had a lot to say about the little ones. Are you ever concerned when you are doing this kind of work that you will overstate another religion's good points? The only reason I don't worry about it much is, first of all, my first teacher of world religions, not in person but in text, was Houston Smith. And that was his tack, was to, to do his best both to enter and come back and report on the best, the central teachings of these traditions, which would help explain why the ones that are taught in most college classrooms are the ones that have lived and evolved and been around for thousands of years and have affected, you know, billions of people's lives. So he would report on the best. And in my time, the reason I do that is the media is full of the worst. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with spiritual teacher and New York Times bestselling author Barbara Brown Taylor about her recent book, Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not Seen Radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with spiritual teacher and New York Times bestselling author Barbara Brown Taylor about her recent book, Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. I want to talk for a moment about the structure of this book, Holy Envy. You've written more than a dozen books, and one of the things that really captivated me about this book is the writing style. So it's cinematic, and by that I mean you go close up, and I'm right there locked in with you talking to a student. But then in the midst of that conversation with the student, suddenly there's a flashback, and I'm, and I'm 10 years before, I'm 15 years before, I'm 20 years before, and I'm in a different space— and I would just wonder about the, the, your process of writing. When you think about putting together these kinds of stories, what do you do to bring those kinds of presences alive for the reader? Oh, what a high compliment you just paid me. That comes out of years and years of preaching. It comes out of years and years of wondering how language touches people, uh, awakens people, stimulates people's curiosity. And I settled on a narrative style, not a propositional style to do that. And I used Jesus as my teacher. I I paid attention to how he told stories and how many questions he asked. When people wanted him to answer something, he usually turned it around on them and asked them what they thought or how they read something, or he'd show them a coin or a thing and ask them what they made of it. So I tried to learn from him how to take a delicate approach Maybe that's the wrong word, but an indirect approach to 
to stimulate curiosity, but also to tell a story good enough that people leaned in instead of leaning away, and maybe leave it a little unfinished. As I think this book is unfinished. This book doesn't tell anybody what to do. I was dismayed. I got on the New York Times bestseller list for about nine seconds, but it was on the how-to list, and I thought, that could not be further from the truth. This is not a how-to book. It's a what-happened book when I started teaching world religions and started visiting all these places and thinking about how to present them. So so there's a long answer. But in that answer, you talked about your care for your reader. And I'm wondering, I'm sure you think about this, who do you hope will be the audience for this book? Not just who you were writing for, but who do you wish and desire this book to fall into the hands of? I have readers who have followed me through two stages of writing, and I know they will pick it up. What they usually say is, I thought I was the only one who thought that or felt that way. Or they'll say, I wouldn't have said that, but I'm glad you did. Or they say, you know, I've always wondered about that, and I'm so glad you wrote the book so I could think more about it. And you gave me, you know, books to read and and exercises to do. So I hear from the readers I know But I'm also hearing from readers I don't know, and they're largely younger people, and a lot of them would claim evangelical identity that's in the process of changing for them, because a number of them, not all by any stretch, have found that some of the teachings they grew up with have separated them from other people, people of other faiths, more than they have related them or put them in a neighbor relationship with people of other faiths. So they're, they're looking for new ways of expressing an old and familiar love of Jesus and a scripture and a prayer and a devotion and service. So those are the new readers who are intriguing me like crazy, and I'm accepting every invitation I get to go be with them and learn more from them. In the introduction to your book, you draw a contrast between the window of your classroom and the window on your phone, and the ways in which those two windows show you different aspects of the world. And one of the things that you bring out from that image is the fact that a lot of your younger readers will be relating to the world in a very different way than people who grew up in my generation or your generation. They they feel a connectedness. And so we're talking about millennials specifically here. How have you found that your work has been speaking to or what have you been learning from the millennials who come into your classroom as students? I wonder... Yeah, they are millennials, aren't they? And most of them were born after 2001, which means the chapter on Islam was the hardest. But what I've learned from millennials is that they are living in a different world. So while many of them value the teachings of their elders, they've outgrown them. It's not as if they've outgrown their spirit, their quest their wish to know more about God, but they've outgrown the containers they were taught to carry those things around in. So I think what they respond to is they see somebody my age who's also standing near the inside edge of my tradition, still identifying as Christian, and yet asking questions that I don't think Jesus minds me asking about how I do love my neighbor as myself or strive to love God with my whole heart and soul and mind. So I think it might be the kind of mutual thirst, hunger, wanting to know more, wanting to be related to more people than I'm alienated from, wanting my faith to give me to give me valuable ways of being with people who are not like me 
and hanging on to my Christian identity. It's a tough thing. Uh, Christian identity in a multi-faith world. There are a lot of ways to do it. And in this book, I explore one that I think holds some promise. So you're a graduate of Yale Divinity School, and I'm sure that there were things that you did on the way to those studies that prepared you. Before she passed, in a conversation that I had with Phyllis Tickle, she mentioned that she thought that everyone who was preparing to go to seminary should start by studying physics and cosmology. That intrigued me. I'm wondering if you were to give advice to students who want to go on to graduate studies in religion, or particularly to go to divinity school or to seminary, what would you suggest today that they need to study to prepare them for that. Gosh, didn't she have good advice? When I went to seminary, I was taught that that theology was the queen of the humanities, and I found that it was true that I could study art and architecture, I could study aging, I could study preaching, I could study Greek, Hebrew, I could study scripture. So in some ways, I'd have to take Phyllis's advice and add everything else. Oh, math and music and literature, and why not world history, and there's a way in which theology permeates, you know, all these other disciplines. And I want to go for my stock answer, which is learn everything you can about what it means to be human at different ages. What does it mean to be born to age, to retire, to partner, to bear children, to die? Because that's what religion talks to. It's what Christianity talks to, but it's what all the religions of the world talk to in their own different and singular ways. So... My three years in seminary were the happiest, the happiest years I can remember. I just basked in it. So that's the other thing I'd say is prepare to enjoy yourself, even though it'll be expensive enjoyment. Well, Barbara Brown Taylor, I just want to say your book, Holy Envy, was, I, I encountered it as a book that was carefully written, but it also just challenged me in all the ways that I needed to be challenged. I think it's a wonderful book. I really learned from it. And I just want to thank you again on behalf of my listeners for taking time today to speak to us. Oh, David, you, you do me such honor by reading it and by asking me these wonderful questions. Thank you, and thanks to everybody who's listening for listening. We've been speaking today with Barbara Brown Taylor. She's the author of 14 books, including the New York Times bestsellers, An Altar in the World and Learning to Walk in the Dark. We've been talking about her recent book, Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.